are listening to the Traditional Outdoors Podcast. This episode of the Traditional Outdoors Podcast is sponsored by True North Arrows. True North Arrows has developed the archery industry's best environmentally safe products to stain, crown dip, crest, and clear finish your wood, carbon, and aluminum arrows. Their products are industrial and exterior grade to give you the toughest finish on the market, plus the true waterborne technology will give you professional results without the odors of solvent-based products of yesteryear. For cresting, True North has classic as well as vintage colors available in cresting paints and crown dip, and there's even metallic cresting paint available for those who really want to set their arrows apart from the crowd. And if you're a carbon arrow shooter, then check out their carbon cleaner. And there's also a carbon primer available to make your carbon and aluminum arrows resemble wood shafts. Now, I used to build a lot of custom arrows, and I've known Joe Callahan at True North for many years. His products for custom arrows are second to none. So be sure to check out his website. And while you're there, also look for the free how-to videos that Joe has made available there. Lastly, if you're not an era builder yourself, that's okay too, because Joe even sells fully built custom eras as well. So just head over to www.truenortharrows.com and have a look for yourself. Hey, Nick, how's it going, buddy? Oh, it's going good, Steve. It's it's going real good. We had kind of a crazy week last week, but uh, you know, it's uh, it's getting better. And uh, we're even doing a little family trip to Michigan Adventure this weekend, and I'm hoping to do a little fishing after work today, and yeah, do a little scouting too on Sunday, hopefully. What about you? Uh, insane week. Mine's kind of piling up, though, because I know Wyoming is is looming in about four weeks, and just trying to get a, ahead of a lot of things with work, and, and even recording you know some additional podcasts. I don't have to worry about that while I'm gone. I can pre-stage those. Uh, we have our uh, last 3D shoot for our local club uh, up at North Georgia Traditional this weekend, so I'll have to set the course on that tomorrow, and they're calling for rain, so I'm actually hoping to spend the rest of the day after setting the course hanging stands uh, on that property, so that'll be ready to go when I do get back from Wyoming, uh, and then we'll have our last shoot Sunday, so yeah, just just a very crazy week. Yeah, and in addition to that, we got the GLLI coming up here next week, and I'll be camping from uh, probably Thursday to Sunday. So, yep, then we'll then we'll be getting serious about hunting, or even more serious anyway. Yeah, August is August is always a, a crazy month, but uh, we've got some we've got some great guests. Um, in fact, uh, it it's it's killing me not to let one of them out of the bag. But this week for episode twenty one, we've we had a really great conversation with Mike Yancey. We did, and um, you know, I have uh, I've known about Mike Yancey and Pine Hollow Longbows for a long time, and uh, I think I met him at the Kalamazoo Expo when I first got started. He's a fantastic guy, very interesting, builds beautiful bows and uh self bows and uh he pretty much carries anything you could want for self bow building um at pine hollow yeah and just a just a all-around well-rounded guy i think we we covered a lot of different topics uh in this in this recording everything from from his his bows bow classes hunting africa um, a little bit of trapping. I mean, we, we kind of, we kind of covered the whole, the whole gamut with Mike. It was, it was a lot of fun talking to him. And I'm, mm-hmm. I met him, uh, I actually met him a few years ago myself at the, um, I can't remember if it was the, the pre-spring arrow fling that, 
uh, Terry Harris did in conjunction with with Compton's or if it was the the Howard Hill shoot in the summer. I want to say it was the spring fling, but uh, I did get to meet him a few years ago myself. Really nice guy. Yeah, and he had some stories too, didn't he? He he sure did. He sure did. So I guess instead of us just rambling along, we'll go ahead and uh, cut over to uh, Mike. So hope everyone enjoys the, the interview. And uh, here he is, Mr. Mike Yancey. All right. Well, joining us tonight on the podcast, we've got Mr. Mike Yancey from Pine Hollow Longbows. How's it going, Mike? Doing great. Thank you, Steve. Nick, how about yourself? It's going good, man. It's uh, we got a little rain. It's cooling down. Uh, still not feeling, uh, still not feeling too great out. But we got some uh, awesome shoots around the corner, and I'm looking forward to that. And uh, and still doing more uh, scouting and a little fishing. So yeah. Well, good deal. So Mike, I guess mm-hmm. let's just kind of jump in and start start talking about uh, longbows and hunting and who knows where we'll 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 end up going but uh i guess just you know for for those that that might not know who you are or might not know who pine hollow longbows is give us a little background on on yourself and and kind of how you got started in in making bows absolutely yeah it's a way life for me it's uh something that i would do whether i was doing it for a business or not i uh I can't ever remember not having a bow. My uh, parents have pictures of me when I was three years old with a little long bow, and it just went from there. I never, I never lost that desire to shoot a bow, and it just progressed from collecting arrowheads when I was a little kid and, and trapping from the time I was big enough to set a trap and the, the love of the mountain man uh, era, that fur trade era, those guys, they fascinated me, and I always wanted to learn how those Indians built things. That finding those arrowheads, it just fascinated me, and I just uh, I'd been bow hunting, you know, basically my whole life, and I had started out, you know, through the '70s with recurves, and then when the compounds came out, I played with them a while, but I had never seen a self bow or even shot one until my until I built my first one, and it just went from there. It just consumed me, and. I got in the business. It, this is actually our 20th year in business as Pine Hollow Longbows, and I uh, it, it just kind of happened on its own. I had bought uh, a bunch of rattlesnakes. I was down in South Texas on a javelina hunt one year, and I saw a, a little card uh, stapled to a bulletin board about a guy that bought live rattlesnakes, and I had been buying uh, snakes from Paul Bruner at Screaming Eagle and everything back then he was selling them and I was having to pay quite a bit and so I called this guy up and see if I could buy some snake skins and he said yeah sure you have to get 300 feet to get the price and and it was a great price when you averaged it out you know for 300 feet into three foot snakes so once I got them I said well man what am I going to do with all these snake skins that I that I don't need right now so I just ran a little classified ad in uh, the back of the primitive archer and literally it just started from that little classified ad selling snake skins and then I added sinew and rawhide and then I went to a display ad and and it literally just took a life of its own and it's just what I've always done and now I get to do it for a living. 
That's great, Mike. What did you, um, so what, what design kind of, what did you gravitate to? Where'd you get your first kind of, uh, mm-hmm. not really schematic, but, but what type of bow did you build for that first time? And where did you get kind of the, the design plans for it or whatnot? Yeah, sure. I, uh, I was fascinated with the Cherokee style and, um, I live right on the Oklahoma line and, uh, Al Heron wrote a book, Cherokee Bows and Arrows. And, uh, I have since done interviews with uh, Al. He, him and his wife are great people. But that book, um, I studied it, and it um, it just came easy to me. His method of uh, he was trained by the old Cherokee masters that were still alive at the time, and and so he was passing down knowledge that a lot of them didn't want him to do. They uh, they didn't want him letting everybody have that information, but he felt like he ought to share it and it not be lost. And I, I went with that method for the first several bows. And uh, and then I kind of grab, gradually started going more towards uh, Jay Massey. And uh, he was still alive back then. And, you know, he had all of his books out. And he was bigger than life to me. He, uh, you know, he lived it and, uh, and hunted with the bows. And so I kind of started adapting a lot of my stuff towards Jay's style of uh, sinew back bows. And then gradually, um, I had been building bows for probably 10 years, and Ed Scott came on the scene and started buying some supplies from me and this and that. And uh, we became friends, and I ended up going out there and taking a, a, a bow class with him. And on the way out there to New Mexico, I'm thinking, why in the world am I driving you know, 800 miles and spending this much money to go do something that I already know how to do. And I know how much work it is and taking a week to go do it. But it was the best week that I have had, you know, in in years at that time. And we uh, we shared information with each other. But the thing I really wanted from Ed was to learn his style of artwork on those bows. And, 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 it, and it worked. And then we I learned a few th- tricks from the the things that he did and he learned some from me as well so it was a great deal and we ended up doing classes together and we had a huge thing going until he passed away a couple of years ago and it was uh we had quite a friendship and that's the neat thing about this type of business it has opened up so many doors for me with guys that you know you you read about and have heard about for you know, if you have an interest in this, you can call them up on the phone and you can just talk to them like anybody you've never uh, met. It's unreal. It's like you've known them your whole life because of that mutual interest and in the the love of the bows, you know. Oh, yeah. And, um, you know, I, I think one of my favorite videos I've ever seen is that that series on that Ed, that Ed Scott did in that little shack. Oh, yeah. You know, they filmed them building those bows and... and mm-hmm. You know, with the with the wood stove running, and and he's yep. doing everything from the beginning to the artwork and talking through it, and that is just a fascinating documentary. Um, and he and, and I, I, you know, I, I, a couple times he brought bows to Compton when mm-hmm. he was still alive. And what I always loved about him was the fact that no, no two were alike. I mean, they were drastically yeah. different, yep. every single one of them. And anybody who's got one today is just like you know, you've got the only one like that. Absolutely. There's no other one. Yeah like that yeah um, well that but that artwork that little, is special 
Yeah, it is. And that little shop there is, he turned out over a thousand bows in his career building bows out of that little shop right off the side of his house. And it changed a lot of people's lives. And it's amazing what can, what can be done in a small space. You know, it's amazing. He, he, he touched a lot of people's lives. I owe him a lot of, a lot in life. I'm proud to have known him not only as a person, but as a bowyer as well. And, you know, I, um, I actually never got to meet him, but, um, I'm, I'm, and I've actually never met Mark Troy either, but I've gotten to be pretty good friends with Mark Troy on through Facebook. And, Mm -hmm. um, he actually sent me some bowstring wax. I don't know, probably two years ago that he made from, uh, uh, I guess you'd call it a recipe that, that, Ed Scott had, had come up with and yeah. uh, back and forth, finally tracked down and I've actually started making this stuff myself and, and make quite a bit of sure. it and use it on all the strings that I build and, and actually uh, uh, sell it to customers as well. The, it's beeswax and pinion pine resin and all this stuff, but mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's one of the few, it's the only connection I've got to it. I never got to meet him, but I've, I've, I've kind of watched yeah. the same thing as Nick, watched the videos and, and got to know him. You know that way. Uh, I never yeah. got to meet him, and he'd have never got to meet Jay Massey either. Yeah, Mark's Mark's a great guy. He's been out here with one of our classes, and and I've known him because of coming out and taking a class with us. He's a he's a super guy. He he truly is, and I don't know. You probably don't know this, Mike. Um, after he took uh, the class with you. Uh, he came back and made. Uh, I, I love the Cherokee style bows myself. In fact, the mm-hmm. the only what I would call a successful self bow that I've made. Uh, I've made a couple that shoot, but they're yeah god awful to look at. But oh. uh, the, I made a Cherokee style bow out of uh, Eastern dogwood, hardest wood I've yeah. ever touched in my life. But um, it is it. Uh, it, it it's functional and it, it works and I really love it. But Mike, after he, I mean, Mark, after he came back from your mm-hmm. class, um, built me a, uh, Eastern Cherokee, Eastern Woodland Cherokee style bow and did the, the artwork on the back of it and so forth that he learned from you. And I, I, I shoot it probably once every month or so I'll take it out and, and go shoot it a bit and I keep saying, I'm going to hit the woods with it. And I, I just haven't done it yet. Maybe, maybe this is the year. Yeah. Yeah. So, Mike, you know, you, you, you talked about making bows, and I guess we kind of threw that out there as far as Mark, you know, came in and took the class with you. But, you know, tell us, tell us a little bit more about the, the bow building classes that you do. And maybe, you know, I guess the, the question in there for me is which do you enjoy the most? Do you enjoy building bows yourself or teaching others how to do it? Oh, that, that's really tough. Um, I'd probably say um, – it's about 50-50. Uh, I, I take a lot of joy and pride in teaching, and, I, and I've been told that I have a way of teaching that really is easy for them to learn. So, you know, I'm proud of that, and I'm proud of passing it on. And um, so I would say probably the teaching is a, a huge part of it. But the, the building, not necessarily for me, but for others, and, and have them take and use it. I... Uh, I'm not a target shooter, and uh, I, I don't care about these little 35-pound target bows with worrying about what color the accent stripe's going to be in the riser and all that. You know, that that doesn't interest me in the least. Uh, I want a heavyweight hunting bow, and I want something that's durable and to use it. And it 
I get such pleasure when guys take bows that I build and go and kill stuff with them and send me pictures. It to me that's the ultimate. So I, I would say probably building them now. You know that I really think about it in that manner. I, I get more pleasure in building them for others and having them use them. And used to I always when I went on trips, I would take the time and build a special bow just for that trip. And uh, the last few years I, I've been able to do that again because I'd gotten away from it. The The business got so busy and I've been doing this full time now for seven years now. And it seems like I, I just have less time than ever for myself. But even though I get to build bows every day and all that, I, it's still it's fun, you know, and everybody says, well, you're turning a hobby into a job. But literally it's not. And I take such pleasure out of seeing guys use these things and the the next pleasure would be teaching them how to build their own and then seeing them go and use it i just feel like these things are meant to be used and you know it's the ultimate compliment when you take one and use them and, and i have good friends ed built a lot of bows for me and uh and other guys i've got a good friend in mississippi neil brown that has built several glass bows for me and man, i've killed as more stuff with neil's bows than he has and to me it's just the ultimate compliment to take a guy's bow that he made you on a hunting trip and it's just like he's part of it i uh the first horn bow that had killed a animal in north america in modern times that had been recorded was a, a bow that Ed made for me. He made me a sinew-backed horn bow, and I killed a pronghorn with it. And as far as anybody knew, it was the first animal that had ever been killed in modern times with one of those horn bows and sinew backs. So, and it was just like Ed was sitting there in the blind with me when I shot that pronghorn. I couldn't wait to get back to where I could get some service and give him a call, you know, and tell him about sure. the hunt. And it, it's just part of it, you know. That's very cool. Very cool. So go ahead and before we move on, tell us uh, or tell everyone about um, the, the bow classes that you're doing. I know you've uh, you've you've started adding or, you know, kind of giving some different options for bow building classes for. So let's go into that just a little bit. Yeah. For uh, the last several years, we've been offering a um, a week long sinew back bow building class and I wasn't doing uh, self-bow classes. And so what we're doing now to kind of make it a little more accessible maybe for other people, we've shortened the time to three days on the sinew back class, and, that, and we pack it in there and you get it done. But we've also, we're offering a uh, two-day self-bow class, and you get a seasoned Osage stave, completely finish it, and uh, you'll learn how to do it all. And then, of course, we do group classes. Uh, I've done them from Maine to Florida. And if a, if guys get a big enough group, I'll come and do a class wherever they want, as long as we can get enough guys, you know, to, to, to get the money that we've got to get to, to do that. And um, that's probably the, the main thing that um, that we've changed is just the uh, the self-bow class and then shortening the 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 sinew back class and we have reduced the price of the sinew back class rather than uh being the price that we had it we've lowered it down to a thousand dollars which is you know cheaper than a custom bow so you get to build your own bow for the cost of less than buying one and that's that's basically what we have changed trying to make it a little more affordable and the days where people can get away 
without having to take off much work and come do it. And it's uh, anybody that has ever been here in these classes say that it's been some of the best time that they have ever spent. You know, we, we sit around and talk about hunting while we're building bows and we, I make it fun. You know, you're going to learn, but it's going to be fun, too. And you're teaching them how to build that Cherokee style bowl, correct, Mike? Well, no, uh, I took that method, you know, and you follow a growth ring, but I changed the layout. I've come up with a method. It's uh, basically probably like Jay Massey did. I don't, I don't know for a fact, but after several years, I just kind of developed a style of my own. I make both limbs the same length. I never decide which is going to be the upper or lower limb until I tiller it and get it strung for the first time, and the stronger limb then becomes the bottom. And I try to keep that through the rest of the tillering. But I build uh, an American flat bow, and uh, I put uh, reflex in the tips, and they're uh, they're performers. They they will flat shoot. We, we can get into that and in some of the when we start talking about hunting. But it's. Uh, I want a bow that'll shoot, and I won't settle for anything less than perfect arrow flight. And I like a bow that has good cast at, you know, 25, 30 yards. And I'm not hunting at that distance. I've killed stuff further than that, but most everything is, you know, 15, 20-yard shots. But I want something that'll get there flat and fast. Sure, sure. So I guess if you, uh, since you opened the door on the, on the hunting, the, the hunting thing, Mike. Let's let's talk about that a little bit. So, I know you've you mentioned the the pronghorn, and I know you've you've huh? you've done quite a bit of hunting in North America, but you've you've also hunted yeah. Africa, correct? Yes, sir. So, I how would, many times uh, have you actually hunted Africa? That last year was my first trip, but I've already got a two week trip planned for next year, and then working on more trips uh, after that. That's. Um, I guess I work to hunt, so that's why I. Uh, it's uh, it's like a drug for me. I tell you, it's. Uh, I, I never had any problem with uh, stimulation when I was a kid because I was always hunting now, and it just. I I, I was always n- not in trouble. They didn't have to worry about me because I was in the woods. I I killed my first animal with a longbow when I was thirteen, and I, it's just been. Uh, a lifelong passion and Africa is something that was always there that I always wanted I wanted to kill a kudu as soon as I realized what one was when from being a young kid and that's another neat thing about this business is that open this business opened that door for me to get to go do that and it has on a lot of other hunts as well but the outfitter offered me a good deal to come and see if I uh, wanted to come try Africa and I said yeah you bet and so we got up a group and went from there and now we're great friends and you know I can't picture not going every other year you know it's uh it's exciting so is the kudu your favorite animal to hunt in Africa I think they're the prettiest absolutely that and the inyalas you know they're awful they're beautiful but every one of those animals you know they've I, I respect them all and it and it's a respect thing you know I don't just go down a list and and start scratching them off it's uh there's a huge amount of respect for those animals and uh everybody lets on like africa's a canned hunt and you're shooting out of fish out of a barrel and nothing could be further from the truth that stuff is like bow hunting turkeys they they look for any reason in the world to explode and leave they they're super cautious uh one wrong noise and they're gone you know it's uh 
they, they never stop for but just a second to drink and half the time they're facing you and you can't get a shot so it's uh, I'm really glad that I waited in my bow hunting career to go later than earlier I, I had several opportunities to go early in my hunting career that I probably uh, wish I had of win at the time but uh, there's a level of experience that a guy needs to reach I believe before you go there because uh, there's a lot on the line as far as you know the trophy fees you know you nick it you pay for it and uh, just the intenseness of it it's uh, when you've got 15 20 different animals and ever maybe three or four different species there at the same time uh, coming into the water and you got so much going on that uh, you just can't make a mistake or you know it, it stuff just explodes and you're sitting there looking at a cloud of red dust and some guineas flying off you know it's just crazy how much harder it is than people give it credit well people tend to forget that that humans over there are probably one of the least effective predators that those animals have to worry about. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes, sir. So Mike, with regards to your, your, your hunting setup, you know, I guess one, one question, did you, did you have a different setup to hunt Africa or did you hunt the same, basically the same bow and arrow setup that you'd used, you know, here in the, in the States? No, I changed it up. I, I really did, and I I never do that. I'm almost superstitious about changing things, and especially with my gear. Um, I've got stuff that I've carried on hunts for years, and it's just like if something was to happen to it, I'd just be lost. You know, it's just it's odd how you get such an attraction for certain things and an affection for it. But um, the bows I I hunt with uh, always sixty pound bows. I, I just like sixty pounds. It works great for me. As I get a little older, I might ooze down to 56 at times, but uh, mo most of my hunting bows are 60 to 63. And uh, for that hunt over there, it was a, a rare occasion that I actually got to build a bow for that, and I, I just couldn't imagine going over there and not doing it and not taking my wife on the first trip. She's not going back on these next trips. Uh, she did there been there done that and and enjoyed it and, and all that but, <laughs> right. you know but you know it's it adds a whole different level of th problems when you do sure. that too but it um I, I got to build a bow for that hunt and what i did um i came up with a design a few years ago and I, i'm calling it my deer slayer model and it um it's a mildly deflexed and then reflex flat bow and I send you back them. I make them longer than they need to be, but they're very sweet to draw. They don't stack, and the things um, really have great cast. But I built one of those, and I made it out of um, elk sinew, out of an elk that I killed in New Mexico with a longbow. On a, I drew the Valley Vidal uh, elk hunt, and it's a once-in-a-lifetime tag. Once you draw it, you can never draw that hunt again. And so... A friend of mine drew it with me of, of all the chances of someone drawing it. Uh, we drew it together as a party, and he helped me pack that elk out one night. And, I mean, it was an elk pack. If You know, anytime you've ever packed elk, you, you know how much work's involved. And we were carrying cameras and bows and, and all that. And about halfway out, I told him, and he had a huge load of meat. And I said, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make you a bow out of this sinew. 
And he said, you ain't got to build me a bow. I said, well, you ain't got to pack all that elk made either. But uh, so I made him and myself a bow with uh, and backed it with the sinew out of that elk. And he has since killed a lot of whitetails with his. And, and I've killed the African stuff with mine. But it was a special bow. And uh, that that's special hunts need special bows, I always say. So, um, and as far as changing things up, I, I didn't change my bow setup at all. It's same type weight and everything. But but Todd Smith, he does all my graphics and my website stuff. He had mentioned to me, uh, I was getting ready to go, and he said, boy, you ought to really consider getting that weight forward and uh, bumping and using the single bevel heads. And I'd been kicking that around. <laughs> And this was a week before I left, and I, I tried it on a couple of shafts that I was going to hunt with, and I put 200-grain uh, woody weights and 185 grizzlies up front. And good night, it's unbelievable the how they work. <laughs> now, I mean, it's just – and blow through that. I blew through the kudu, and I wouldn't have killed the gimsbuck had I not – done that because i centered a rib the the shot placement was perfect but that 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 thing ran off and i thought man why didn't i get any more penetration and uh it just thumped it boy and when we found it the next morning it didn't go 85 yards and uh when the the trackers and skinners were skinning it i was out there seeing what the deal was and what had happened that big old heavy rib that arrow it looked like you just drilled a hole right through that rib and it split the rib, but by it being the rib being so big and the animals so big, it literally just stayed in the rib and didn't break it and shatter it like it would a white tail. You know, it just right, right. The, the shaft the shaft stayed in that rib, but it had enough momentum that it pushed that arrow all the way through the off rib and punched a hole just out the other side and left a bloodshot spot the the size of a baseball and i mean that right there told me that for big game man that is the way to go because it it sure did a number on that that ginsbuck that that wouldn't have happened had i been shooting a lighter shaft uh the bow the bow is just the bow you know it's going to go as fast as it's going to go but that arrow momentum is was the key right there and and having those things shaving sharp so it made a believer out of me and i try to tell everybody that i can to use those woody weights and um, not not necessarily a single bevel broadhead but you know it definitely worked for me and on big game that's all i'll ever use anymore it's kind of funny you brought Todd up. He's actually um, he was on our uh, on the show last week, and we're actually releasing the episode with him and Isaac Justice this week. So, um, wow, kind of kind of funny that you you brought that up. But uh, yeah, so, I bet you his ear I bet you his earlobes are burning right now. Probably are. They probably are. <laughs> Uh, just a little bit of a follow-up, uh, Mike, as far as the – so you said the, the bow – you made a bow special for that, but it was about the same poundage. Um, sure. Any idea what your what your total arrow weight was for Africa? 750 on those. Um, now, I had some hickory shafts that were 1,000, and um, I thumped a warthog with a 1,000-grain hickory shaft with the same head and um, woody weight – that I was in an elevated blind and I shot that warthog and it blew through and it hit the ground and it couldn't go any further than it did. So the <laughs> the warthog ran off 
with the shaft in it, but uh, in the death run, it ended up working all the way through and passed on through. But it was a neat experience there in that that shaft, I had killed a hog, a wild hog in Texas with that same arrow shaft and I, and I blew plumb through that pig and I wanted to kill a warthog with it if I was given a chance in Africa and I just thought that was the neatest thing to be able to kill a, a hog in North America and a warthog in, in Africa with the same arrow and, and set up so got to do that so it but yeah they were extremely heavy and I had several uh, shafts in my quiver that were in that thousand grain range that were all hickory but the, the majority of the stuff that well the stuff that i killed uh, it was a gimsbuck uh kudu an impala and another warthog were with um the sherwood uh douglas fur shafts that uh that i had the woody weights and um single bevel grizzlies on 185s and they're all of those average uh 750 to like 758 they were all real closely matched yeah, I'm loving this North America connection with your gear, too, and taking it over to Africa. That's really, really cool. You got a bull backed by the, with an elk you killed in in, uh, in North America with a very special hunt. And then you got, you know, you're taking that and you're you're taking game in Africa with it. An arrow you took yeah. a pig in Texas with and took a warthog yeah. with it. I mean, I just think that that's, that's really cool. What would you, well, that's a lot of memories right there. What, what do you think is your most memorable hunt? Well, uh, while you're on that. Let me let me tell you think that's cool. I, I've got something coming up that's the coolest thing you've ever heard of. I did a mountain lion hunt back in uh, in New Mexico back in January of this year, and we treed two lions on that hunt, and um, they weren't mature. They they weren't little tiny kittens, but they weren't mature lions, so I didn't shoot. But on that hunt, it was a seven-day hunt, and literally, I've been on elk hunts from the time I was about 18 years old to, to now, and everybody knows how hard an elk hunt is. This mountain lion hunt was the hardest physically demanding hunt that I've ever been on in my life. And while we were doing that, we found three different elk kills that were killed by mountain lions. So I tore into wow. them like a bu like a buzzard. Now I'm ripping sinew out of them things, and I have I have a new bow that I, I've rebooked that hunt. I said I got to go back and do this, and I have backed a takedown Osage with elk sinew that was killed by a mountain lion, and me and the outfitter are both committed to killing a lion this year and using that bow. And when I'm done with it, I'm giving it to him because he has a knowledge of of this stuff he's he's made some bows he's made some flintlocks and he's the real deal and he's a real cowboy and just uh i appreciate him i said man when i kill this lion it's going to be yours because he said he's always wanted to kill a lion with an osage bow and and he's killed a lot of lions that were problem lions and you know this and that he had to take out for uh new mexico for different reasons you know but t he wants to do a one-on-one -on -one hunt with himself on dry ground and just his dogs and so it, it's just cool it don't get any cooler than that right there you know that's the real deal but uh, no it does not 
And your question was, what was my favorite animal to hunt in North America? Well, uh, that's one of them. Actually, my question was, what is your most memorable hunt? But uh, man, okay. I don't know how you top. There's, geez, you got so many, it'd be hard to pick, I think. Literally. <laughs> it's just what I have just done is my favorite. Because for years, it was turkeys. I wouldn't hunt anything, but all I did was trap and turkey hunt. I lived for it. Whitetails, everybody lives for whitetails. I could care less. If we didn't eat them, I, I wouldn't even hunt them because uh, they just don't do anything for me. We love to eat them and, and we have them. But uh, man, it, it literally, you hit it on the head because it, it's hard for me to nail down what's my favorite. Uh, and it goes in spurts, I guess, because for about 15 years, I hunted pronghorns and killed a ton of them. And I've got some Pope and Young antelope that I've taken, and I've taken them with special bows. Uh, when I uh, came up with my Cheyenne model, it's a little short, 52, 54-inch uh, deflex reflex Indian-style bow, and um, I called it my Cheyenne. And I, I built that bow for a good friend of mine, Jerry Bowen, that lives out there in Wyoming. He started putting me on antelope 10 years ago. And uh, he and I hunted hard for about seven years together. And all those years, I was saving the sinew and stuff and rawhide and things out of those antelope. And when I came up with that Cheyenne design, I built him and myself one out of all the antelope sinew and rawhide that I'd saved from our past hunts. And we took those to Wyoming, there where he lives, and tested them. And we've both killed a ton of deer. He's killed Pope and Young uh, mule deer and several antelope with bows that I've made him. That uh, It's just a, a great testament to friendship and, and what these bows can do and how personal a guy can make it, you know, if you'll allow it, you know, and start using things that you've that you've that means something to you in the bow building part of it so yeah it's uh but and memorable too i was on a caribou hunt in the northwest northwest territories when 9 11 happened we were uh we had been on a and it was a big traditional group uh larry fisher from the traditional bow hunter that's passed away right. we, we became good friends on that hunt and hunted javelina together before he died and you know uh when 9-11 happened, we were in the air and they made us land in Canada. We The hunt was over. We were coming back home. They made us land in Canada and get off the plane and said, you, you know, the U.S. had been attacked and we didn't have a clue what was going on. And so we got to spend another week together in motels in Canada trying to figure out how we were going to get home. But um, I killed two really nice caribou bulls on that hunt with a, a takedown Osage bow that I had taken a black bear in Canada with a couple of years before. And uh, so that was, uh, it was an adventure that uh, hunting on that barren ground is really an experience that I'm glad I did it when I did because the, the caribou operations aren't there like they used to be, you know, and it's just almost a thing of the past to get to caribou hunt like that. But every single animal i guess that i've ever hunted is my favorite it's just hard to put it down even uh feral hogs in texas i i can have more fun going out there in texas and killing an ice chest full of pigs is is anything i just find adventure in everything well it's funny mike you sitting here listening you talk about that we we were talking to mike mitten just a few weeks ago and and he mm -hmm. was actually in alaska 
uh, when 9-11 happened. So, uh, you know, I, I, it's, it's funny that it seemed like a lot of people was <laughs> was hunting when that went down. I don't think he mentioned getting stranded. So he may have just gotten there or something. But, uh, yeah, yeah. It's, 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 it's wild stuff. Our problem was our problem was they wouldn't let any flights come back into the U.S. You know they they were still doing domestic flights if you could get across the border, you know, right. and that's what we ended up doing. We ended up having to rent a a van and going six hundred something miles to Great Falls, Montana, and then once we got across the border, we could make some domestic arrangements, but you couldn't get in the from Canada. It was the air was shut down. It's wild. That's wild stuff. Um, mm-hmm. I'm gonna I'm gonna back you up a little bit, Mike, because I I did okay. have you, you some of the things you said. I've got some some I'm a I'm a tech head, so I got to go in and ask more of the gear questions. Okay. Um, so the 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 thousand grain arrows. I guess the the first thing or the seven fifty and the thousand grain. What what spine mm-hmm. arrows did you have to end up going with to get that? that much weight up front in a wooden shaft to work because I know, and the reason I'm asking that is this came up on our conversation with Todd last week that mm-hmm. it's, it's a misnomer uh, or a misunderstanding by a lot of people that you can't do the high FOC with wood shafts and load them up with all that weight. And I've done it. Mm. And in all honesty, oh, yeah. you're probably the only other person that I've actually talked to that, that did the same thing with wood shafts. So what spine, what spine were the shafts that you were shooting with all that weight up front? Sure. Um, I have a 26-inch draw. Uh, they're 60-65s, and it don't matter to me if they're cedar or, or you know, Douglas fir. It really makes no difference. I put it on all of them. But a uh, 60-65 spine, 26-inch uh, draw, the shafts are cut to 28 and a half. So I've got a little extra length, so that weak- right. weakens them a little bit. But uh, even with that extreme up-front weight, you know, they, they fly like darts. And uh, they, they recover so quick out of the bow, you don't lose any energy. And they, they quieten the bows down. They're, they're quiet to start with, but you start shooting something like that out of them, they really get quiet. And you mentioned, um, I can't remember if it was after we started recording or if it was when we were just kind of chatting before we actually started mm-hmm. recording the podcast. But you mentioned that the your bows were, were snappy. So I'm assuming that mm-hmm. you've, you've chronographed some of these things. So do you... You can you share what what kind of speed you're getting out of you know maybe the the heavier setup that you were using in Africa and then you know what kind of speed you're typically getting out of the bows that you hunt with here in North America. You know I haven't shot these bows through a chronograph in years. Um, when I first started building them, I was just crazy with it, you know, and shot them all, shot them all. But um, and the best I ever got out of one of my sinew back flat bows was 189 to 191 average on um, that one particular bow, and that was the best I ever got. But uh, th- this kind that's of way, pretty, this slows pretty them snappy. <laughs> that's mm-hmm. very fast, yeah, and that's the best I ever got. But I'm going to guess that on average weight and in average weight arrow, you know, they're probably shooting 175, which is, is still extremely good to me for a wood bow and sinew back bow, you know, all that. But you start shooting that kind of weight, and, and that's with like a 600 grain arrow, you know, 650. But when you start bumping them up, you know, close to 800 and on up to 1,000, you will definitely notice it at 20 yards. You know, at 15, there's hardly no difference at all. And after a shot or two, if, when it gets July, I don't shoot anything but broadheads, and I shoot one arrow, go get it, shoot it, go get it. 
and uh, after a shot or two, your your mind just tells you what to do. You know, it's uh, you don't notice the drop, and uh, you can shoot it on out to 20 yards and not have any problem. The first time or two, it'll drop in there about six inches low, but literally after that first shot or two, it just falls right in there. Where are you looking? Well, like I said, the 190 is not. That's that's not. There's that's nothing to slouch yet. So, um, yeah. Yeah, that's pretty snappy. Mike, I'm going to um, take just a quick break right here. We'll, we'll do our um, passing down traditions mid-roll segment, and then we'll get right back into talking to you, okay? All right. This week on Passing Down Traditions, I'm happy to be joined by Ethan Roderick, Councilman for Professional Bowhunter Society. How's it going, Ethan? Hey, it's going great, Steve. Thanks for having me, buddy. Glad to have you on here. I've been uh, wanting to get somebody on from from PBS for quite some time now. So you know we've kind of talked a little bit, and you you know what this this little segment's about. So I guess just jump in and and for all the listeners, tell us a little bit more about uh, the Professional Bowhunter Society and and the things that that PBS is doing to preserve the the tradition of bow hunting. Sure, I'd be glad to. Um, so the PBS was established a little over little over 50 years ago. Um, it's a fraternal organization, and it's, it's dedicated to the preservation of bow hunting. At the time it was established, um, there were a lot of field archers, and field archery in general was really big in, uh, in North America. And there were a lot of bow hunting organizations that was kind of somewhat being taken over by, uh, by the field archery. So PBS came out. Um, with the, the, the mindset of, we want to have a bow hunting organization that's strictly bow hunting. And, you know, that's where the, uh, the minimum draw weight and, and all that stuff got started. Um, we got roughly, we got a little over a thousand members. Uh, we got members from other countries. Uh, it's, it's a, it's a great organization, but probably one of the biggest challenges I think of PBS is trying to get across to people what PBS is all about. And it's one of those things, Steve, that you could explain to somebody for hours about what PBS is, and they would have a, a general idea. But if they were ever had an opportunity to attend a gathering or go on a membership hunt or just hang out with some PBS guys, they would it would probably take less than five minutes, and you you know you would instantly get, be like, "Yep, I I know, I see what it's about now." It's and uh, it's just a great organization. Um, and I'll be I'll be honest, Ethan, I. I I tend to spread myself too thin, which we, you and I kind of <laughs> talked about that a little bit. <laughs> I've been a member for, for quite a few years now. I'm, I'm still a, an associate member. I've got the application uh, for regular and I've started, you know, I've started working on it. I've, uh, Joe Lash has agreed to sponsor me. Mm. And I, I've got to get around to finishing this thing and get it sent in, but it's just, I've always got so much to do and, yeah. and uh, you know, the, the gatherings as well. It's just, it's, it's on my list, but I managed to keep myself, <laughs> I managed to keep myself too busy, I guess. Well, I'll, I'll give you a word of warning. If you ever get a chance to go to the gathering, um, the biannual banquet, you probably will never miss another one. It's pretty special. It's a lot more like a family reunion than anything else, but, um, I'm actually glad you brought that up about the uh, associate member. Um, we do have, a, it's, it's a two tier membership. Um, so anyone can be an associate member. We have guys that have been in PBS. I've been involved with the organization for, I don't know, close to 20 years, but, um, there are guys who have been members of PBS for longer than I have and they're associate members and there's, there's no pressure for anyone to become a regular member. Um, if someone 
joins the professional bow hunter society and they determine that they like it and they want to be a regular member. Um, what they will do, you mentioned Joe Lash. He's a good friend of mine. He's a great guy. Yes, he um, is. Yeah. He's, he's a, he's a killer too. I, I wouldn't want to be a critter in the woods if he was, a, <laughs> if he had a tag for me, <laughs> but, um, he's humble too. He won't admit that, but he's a killer. But, um, regardless, you, you get a member who's in good standing to sponsor you. Um, there's, um, call an application and it just kind of goes through your thoughts on on everything from fair chase to um you know what bow hunting is about uh the primary weapon you hunt with has to be a bow and arrow uh there is a, a minimum of eight big game kills and some people get confused on that it, it isn't eight different species it can be eight white tailed does it's just it's just a way to ensure that people are kind of in this for the long haul because i mean i've got a lot of friends who you know, you see them today and man, they're, they're all about playing golf or what have you. Right. And, and a year later you'd see them and they're all about motorcycles and that's fine, but we just want to make sure that people are in the organization. If they're going to be regular members and they're going to be voting that they are true, dedicated, dedicated bow hunters. Um, but the application it's, it's pretty lengthy. Um, it's a lot of reflection and that goes in front of council and we as council will review the membership and, um, review the candidate and the, we will, uh, you know, make the decision. Most people who are at that point, oh, the vast majority of the people who are at that point, you know, there's, there's hardly ever any hitches in that. The only difference in a regular member and, and a, and a associate member is the regular member votes and he pays more money for dues. And that's it. That's literally the only difference. If we have membership hunts or membership meetings at the banquet, um, anything there's there's absolutely zero difference so there's you know there's no perks along with that it's just kind of another level of commitment i guess you could say and that's that's the only reason i'm i'm looking at it is that next level of commitment and a little bit more right. support to organization it's uh i've been on kind of a, a kick the last couple of years becoming life member in a couple of different organizations and mm-hmm. You know, this is this is my way to to help support PBS. Uh, I know I've got to do. Uh, I want to do more writing for uh, PBS as well. I've I've submitted quite a few articles to other um, publications, but I, I I haven't done it to PBS, and I I really need to because that's that's what makes the organization great is is the people getting in and supporting it. Um, Absolutely. You know, from the ground up. Absolutely. Um, yeah, and we we encourage everyone to uh, to submit articles and stories to uh to the publication it's we've, we've got a i've done a few and we've got a really good team of editors that'll make you sound not quite so dumb um i know that personally speaking my i'm not a writer but uh <laughs> they can usually doctor them up and make them make them passable anyways um but that's one of the things as a member we have uh we have a quarterly magazine that comes out it's, it's a it's one of the best magazines in my opinion out there um and it's all stories from PBS members and it's all about bow hunting. And that's one of the unique things I think about PBS is if, for instance, if you go to a gathering, you know, you, you can walk into a room and you see, we've got a lot of big name guys in there and we've got a lot of guys that have done a lot of things. Um, and you, you see all these guys and you're like, wow, man, I remember reading this story from, from Gene and Barry when I was a kid or man, there's Monty Browning or Nathan Anderson or, you know, all these great, great Don Thomas, all these great hunters. Um, but at the end of the day, they're just as excited to hear about the doe you killed in the woodlot behind your house as you are to hear about some, you know, Asiatic water buffalo in Australia or what have you. And at the end of the day, it's all about bow hunting. 
And um, I've, I've had, I've sat down the meals with friends from PBS and uh, at Kalamazoo one year and I was sitting at the table, I was looking around and we had a uh, big three automotive company CEO. We had a plumber. I'm a machinist. There was a guy there who was a doctor. There was a guy there who was a dentist. There was a couple guys there that worked in factories and none of that mattered. We were all just sitting down like family talking about bow hunting and sharing adventures. And that's something that's really, really unique about PBS. Um, we also have a Facebook page and an Instagram page. Uh, we have a website. Um, we'll have a biannual gathering like we've already talked about every other year. And that rotates from different parts of the country. The mm-hmm. one we, we, we have coming up is going to be in 2020 because it's every other year. And that one's going to be in Springfield, Missouri. Um, but we, we, the most recent one was in Madison, Wisconsin, but we try to move them around, you know, West coast, middle of the country, East coast, back in the middle of the country. So it's, it's within driving distance for most everybody at some point. Um, we'll have odd year gatherings. Uh, basically someone will just decide to have a little get together. Um, we might have an odd year gathering up in the Northeast or, or what have you. Anybody can do those, can, can, can organize one of them. Another thing that's really great is we have membership hunts and we've had these hunts for black bear in Alaska, black tail in Oregon, elk, mule deer, hogs, javelina, turkey, you name it. Um, and the really cool thing about that is any member, and again, associate, regular, doesn't matter. Any member can decide, hey, I want to host a hunt for whatever species, wherever. And I think we can accommodate, sometimes it's 10 people, sometimes it's six people, what have you. And the first 10 or six people, whatever, that throw their name in the hat and go, hey, I want to go to that, then they're in. And all you got to do is get there and buy your license. Um, and that's a huge help. I'm, I'm actually going back to Utah this year, like we talked about a little bit ago uh, in a couple of weeks. And, you know, when you go elk hunting, you almost need a week to find them and a week to hunt them unless, right. you, unless you really know the area or you know someone who, who is from the area. And, you know, that's a huge help. Um, I, I feel totally confident in saying that if any PBS member, whether he's ever been to a banquet or, or not or anybody knows him, if he drew a tag anywhere, he could reach out to other PBS members. And if anybody was in that area, he would get help. Um, and you know, it's type of organization you get out of it, what you put into it. But if you go to a banquet and you spend the weekend at the hotel talking to all of these guys, if you don't get invited to a couple of hunts, you probably just stayed in your hotel room and you, you didn't mingle, you know, it's just that, it's just that kind of organization. And, um, it's just really, really cool to be a part of that. Yeah, and I've, I've I've got to commit to doing more of that myself. It's just one of those things of of making sure I have the time, which I do have a my my youngest daughter. This is her last year of high school, so mm. um, some time might free up moving forward. So I need to yeah. focus on that. And I I will make a commitment to you just for coming on the show. I will find something to actually. Uh, I've got a couple of hunts already lined up this fall, so. I will make a point and find a story that, that I get submitted to the, the, the publication this year. That'd be great, Steve. We'd, uh, we'd love to have it. We're, we're always needing material. Um, we run a lot of older articles from the past as well. And, mm-hmm. you know, we never run short, but we're always needing stuff. So yeah, that would be, that'd be great. We'd love to, and then, you know, anybody else out there listening to this, if they're a PBS member, we encourage you to write some stuff down and everybody's got stories to tell and, um, you know, we, everybody likes to hear that stuff. So 
Yeah, please, please do. And if you're thinking about joining PBS, I encourage you to do so and, uh, you know, send in an article. We'll, we'll certainly, uh, certainly put it in there and, and get the stories out for sure. All right. Well, Ethan, thank you so much for taking the time to, to hop on here with me today for, for everyone listening. And I will include links in the show notes, but the website is www.professionalbowhunters.org. And like Ethan said, you can also find PBS on Facebook. So uh, just do a search in, in Facebook and you should be able to find it. Ethan, absolutely. I really, I really do appreciate it, man. Yes, sir. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. It was a good time. It's great talking to you. We're going to get back to our, our regular show now. All right, guys. Thanks. Okay, Mike. Um, I wanted to, uh, I was wondering if you could tell our listeners and us a little bit about the styles of bows that you make um, and uh, describe okay. them a little bit. The the self bows that I build, everything that I do is Osage Orange. I don't mess with any of the other woods. And um, the self bows, I'd really gotten away from them, but I'm coming more back to them because they're so dependable and that you don't have the weight loss and gain like you do with the sinew back bows. But they're just an, an American-style flat bow, basically, and I reflex the tips, and uh, you're getting a good quiet bow that's got good speed. The uh, I don't call them anything in particular as far as a name. On my sinew back models, I've got a Cheyenne, which is a little short bow that's uh, sinew back, has a lot of deflex reflex that's great for tree stands and um, out of blinds. A lot of the antelope that I've killed, I've used those. They're they're just easy to handle in a in a tight situation. And uh, like I say, they're a sinew back Osage bow. The the other model that I'm building is my um, Deer Slayer. It's a mildly deflex reflex, uh, longer bow, uh, more of a American style flat bow, I guess you would call it, with the sinew backing. It, uh, they're smooth to draw, have good cast. Uh, that's the bow that I hunted with in Africa. They're, um, they're real stable. They're, they're forgiving. The little short bows are snappy in close range, but uh, you better be on your game when you're shooting them because you can, as far as me anyway, I can make a bad shot if I'm not really careful and following through. Um, the other, my Ghost Dancer and Medicine Man, they're basically the same bows. They're, uh, I can make them self-bow or sinew-backed, and uh, it's just the artwork on them. The, the Ghost Dancers have um, rawhide with, artwork on them but then again i can snake back them and uh, they're basically the same as the self bow with a just a very very mild deflex coming out of the handle and then going into reflex and uh th they're all good bows but honestly uh i'm getting more away from the sinew back bows they are uh I would say they're probably almost indestructible with normal use and care you couldn't probably wear one out and last you a lifetime but they're they're, uh, they're almost like they're still alive they uh, you never know what you're going to get in uh, cold weather they're going to gain weight in hot weather they're going to lose weight and uh, i don't mind the cold weather part but i can't stand that losing weight and they, they just get real sluggish um, they don't perform but in uh, in a cold camp when you're hunting I leave them strung all night. You have to. The uh, the sinew will shrink so much that you can't even hardly string them. So if I'm hunting out west where it's drier and cooler, I'll leave them strung all night in camp. 
and uh, man, they're fine. But and if you're not shooting guys that don't shoot a lot, they um, that sinew continue continues to shrink as it's not being used. So you can you can easily gain 10, 15 pounds with not using them or cold weather. And so I don't like that really? part. Yeah, I don't like that part of it. Um, so it's and there's nothing you can do about it. It's just the nature of a sinew back bow. And if somebody says that they don't do it, you know, they haven't taken them anywhere, you know, because uh, I've been all over the North America with them and and even, you know, like, say, different places. And it uh, you definitely have a roller coaster on weight and uh, weight gain and loss. So I try to avoid that at all costs so do you have um is that is it a is that just for sinew or is it similar with um with other backings like snakeskin no snake won't do anything it's purely looks it don't add any poundage uh a rawhide backing will uh, add about four pounds to the the bow like if i built one that was 50 pounds and i put a rawhide backing on it it gained about 54 it gained to about 54 but it'll never gain again and it won't lose again you know it just it stays the same it just creates a good safe backing but the sinew literally is still alive and that's why it just keeps uh but it gives the bow life too you know when it's working right and you're in and that's why the plains indians used it you know the the eastern indians and the southern natives they they didn't use it you know they they had access to longer wood and they could build a longer bow but the plains indians were having to deal with shorter wood lesser quality right. wood and so and they weren't affected by the the humidity and the they have temperature but it seems to be more humidity and altitude affected than it does so much temperature so mike what's the uh, i know you you said on the the cheyenne what's the length on the no, the typical length on the the deer slayer uh 64 to 66 you know i go down 62 even or can go shorter and still keep the amount of reflex in my form you know i won't lose the the reflex at the tips but they seem to perform the best at anywhere from about 64 to 66 like I say, and then as mm -hmm. far as as um i'm sorry i've got a bunch of questions here sure. about the, the two different bows so mm -hmm. <laughs> on the on the cheyenne what's the because it is such a short bow for a self bow what's mm -hmm. the uh i guess the safe um uh, amounts of, of draw length you can make those in well they're, they're sending what's you the back. longest yeah. draw weight yeah they're, they're sending you back so they'll accommodate a way longer draw than a self bow would at those lengths but for a 26 inch draw i build them 52 and for a 28 inch draw i'll build them out to 54 so um that and they they hold up just fine at that but i don't want to go any shorter at either one of those draw lengths and if somebody had a longer draw they'd need to be even a little bit longer than that but uh they're they're a they're a snappy little bow but they're not for everybody you know like say they're that really, for a guy that just likes to bow hunt, really, I, I would prefer longer bows. You know, they, uh, I think they're just, they serve you better in so many different uses. And I, I'll be honest, I, I hunted with 68 and 70 inch bows for several years, but I tried a 64 inch last year. Mm -hmm. Um, a, a takedown longbow that was gifted to me, and I'll be honest, I kind of fell in love with that 64-inch length. Mm -hmm. um, what about um, what, what about draw weights? How how high do you typically, or how heavy can you typically go in in either of the bows as far as draw weight between the the Deer Slayer and the, the Cheyenne? Oh, I can do anything. It doesn't matter as far as weight, but uh, most 
most of them are like in the 50 pound range that most guys want. But, uh, you know, I have some guys want them 60 and 65, but, uh, and then some on down to 45, but the weight really doesn't matter. The only difference if somebody's wanting one pretty light and, and I'm calling light, uh, like 45, uh, and 40 to 45, if they want anything that light, I really need to, to make, to make the bows more narrow. I'll, uh, instead of being an inch and a half in the layout, I'll, uh, I'll bring them down to almost a longbow to like an inch and a quarter. Cause, uh, if not, they're going to end up being so thin on the belly that I can't get the performance out of them. They need a, a little thicker belly to get the speed. And, uh, I had told you earlier, I'm a, just a fan of heavyweight bows, but, um, uh, I built some 45 pound bows for some ladies that, uh, that I built them narrow and, uh, that I've had a few of those that I would have elk hunted with. They, they, they performed per poundage. Everything hit just right. I guess the, the draw length, the weight, the, the width, the thickness, everything hit just right. And th those two particular ladies models bows that I built would really perform. So it kind of made a believer out of me, uh, you don't necessarily always have to have poundage in the cure for everything. You know, performance is a lot. Sure, absolutely. Now, Mike, what do you? Uh, what about um, what kind of string material do you use on your bows and uh, mm -hmm. and tip overlays and whatnot? Yeah, I put overlays on all of them. I use buffalo horn on almost everything. I'll use micarta occasionally and a lot of elk antler and stuff like that. You know, depending on the bow and uh, what type of medicine I'm wanting to put into it. You know, if it if it has a special meaning, you know, I'll. Uh, I kind of carry that theme, you know, like that uh, bow that I'm going to hunt the mountain lion with, with the elk sinew, it'll have elk antler on the overlay, you know, just kind of a theme there. But as far as string material, I've shot fast flight on these bows for about the last 15 years. And uh, everybody said that you can't shoot self bows with fast flight strings and all this and that. And, but they say you can't make a self bow and leave sapwood on there and you can. And uh, you can use Type Bond 3 instead of hide glue, and it works just as good. There's a, a lot of things that people say you can't do that, that works. And Fast Flight is, uh, I'll, I'll never shoot anything other than that unless they come up with something better. Because uh, once I went from B50, man, you talk about how you can feel it in the bow. It, it, it just, it's unbelievable how much better the bow performs, and you can just feel it in your hand. It's like... To me, it's like all the energy goes to the arrow instead of just being left in the bow. Um, the the feel of the release is just thunk compared to thunk. You know, it's I, I just can't uh, express how much I like the fast flight. It works for me. Next time I get to run into you, I'm shaking your hand again just for that. That was worth the price of admission for me right there. Right. <laughs> Yeah, I was going to say, Steve's over there just salivating right now. He's like, that's what I've been trying to say. <laughs> I, and I'm, I'm the same way. I don't, I've got some, some recurves that, that I won't shoot, which, and I, and I should preface that. I won't shoot them. Uh, for the most part, I don't shoot them. Um, I'm not a, a recurve guy anyway, but there, there's a couple of these that I've got that are real special. But um, the any of the longbows that I have that, you know, weren't, quote approved for fast flight i just pad the loops with mm -hmm. you know two to four extra strands 
and I I shoot fast flight on all of them. And you, you know, uh, in fact, a a good friend of mine uh, sold me a a Kramer Autumn last year, uh, seventy I think it's seventy five at twenty eight, mm-hmm. and I threw fast flight string on it. I've probably shot a thousand arrows through it and not a single problem just yeah. again padded the loop so it gave the the knocks a little bit more cushion mm-hmm. cushion but yeah man i hate i just hate dacron strings i make them for customers and yeah. i know there's people out there that love them but it's kind of like you said it's like you're shooting with a rubber band on the bow mm-hmm. yep nick do you have anything you wanted to follow up with? No, actually, on the, on the bow building side of things, no. Um, I, well, you know what? I do have one more question uh, for uh, on the bows, Mike. Okay. Um, do you have do you offer different kinds of uh, handles or grips uh, or anything like that? Like, do you form them a certain way on all the bows, or or you know, do you take like special requests on them, or or anything like that? Yeah, I take requests to a certain extent. I uh, I'm pretty set in my way i want to build them but uh like if a guy called me up and said uh, would you build me an english longbow i, I can but i won't you know i i don't <laughs> i don't like them and uh you know and they're not hard to build but i, I just don't like it and uh, same thing with like the cherokee debos you know i i can build them but i don't like them and on the handles it's the same way uh, i like a straight handle um, i have started putting just a little bit of a dish for a locator type grip and um when I build a bow, the handle and the tips are the last thing I work on, and I really try to refine them and make them really neat. I, I think that's one of the things that a lot of guys lack in their early bows is um, the handles, especially. They're just, it's like they just put a two before on there, but I like to uh, really thin them down and, and get, and, and I cut them center shot. You know, I cut, I cut my sinew back bows right to center. Um, and by the time I get a striker plate on there, they're a little bit outside of center. But and, and that's another thing, guys. Say you can't shoot a, a shelf and a and cut a cut a a sight window into a self bow. We can, you know. I've I've built hundreds of them that way, and I, I like I can shoot a bow off my knuckle. I can't tell a bit of difference, but I still prefer a shelf, and especially if, uh, just on a stand or well any hunting situation. It's just like the it's ready to go at any time and and if it's if you don't have that shelf on there you can't have your arrow laying up there if you've got it hanging on a limb or something i usually have my bow in my lap and uh, i don't hardly ever put it up but to me it's just like it's ready to go if if i've got that shelf on there and i have it holding hold it on there and it just it's just the way i like to do them and then you have less problem with spine you can shoot a wider range of spine and not have such a problem when you put a broadhead on there it uh it's just not as critical to the spine as if you were shooting off right off the bow with no shelf and makes makes perfect sense i'm i've tried shooting the bows off the knuckle mm-hmm. and i can do it in fact the the bow that i'm hunting with this uh well, the last two years now has got very little shelf and i mean it's very little but it has a little bit and that's kind of just enough i i'm kind of like you i just i don't i don't care for shooting off my off my hand it just doesn't yeah doesn't work for me mm. um, i could never I, I could never get that to work either um i've i've dabbled a little bit in the self-bow building and and people have said you know you just put a flap on there or something like that or hey you put a little bit of dowel on there or <laughs> you, you do this you do that and i could never it's too too just too fickle 
Well, if you're going to do Everything. all that, put a shelf on it. Yeah, I was going to say, like, what are you doing? Yeah. Okay, if you're going to have a big, if you're going to have a three inch flap of leather on there, it might right. as well be a shelf. Exactly. <laughs> well, Mike, I'm gonna I'm gonna change directions on you a little okay. bit because uh, there, you know, there's a couple of other things I did want to try to get in here that traipses a little bit away from from traditional archery, but mm-hmm. uh, I know that you know trappings something that that you've spent a, a good bit of time doing and it was something that i did a lot growing up it's mm-hmm. it's nothing i've done in wow 30 years or more probably now for various reasons the biggest reason is i don't have the flexibility to actually be able to go out and check traps every day which mm-hmm. is kind of a necessity but yeah. um you know it seems that there it it, it there's been a resurgence, or at least from my, there's a perception I have that there's been a, a resurgence in trapping, especially around predator trapping in the last few years. Mm-hmm. And just wanted to kind of pick your brain about that, see if you had any any thoughts about that, and and maybe even you know talk a little bit about what what drew you into to trapping. Yeah, I think part of the resurgence in it is all these guys that were teenagers in the late 60s early 70s that were trapping then when it was during the big fur boom they're all retiring now so they've got time to check traps (laughs) (laughs) and they're just turning back into little kids again but uh i never i never lost that desire uh i've missed one trapping season since i was uh 12 or 13 years old and that's when i was building my house and i just had absolutely no time and i had to take every minute that I had to, to work on this house and it, it just didn't allow it. But I've, uh, man, it's been a passion of mine forever and, and it serves a purpose and so few people do it anymore that it's opened a lot of doors for places for me to hunt that, uh, because of the ranches that I trap and providing them a service sure. and they realize that after me being there for a year or two, that it's, um, uh, the numbers of, uh, turkeys are coming back. It's just, um, that you couldn't um there's no way they wouldn't let me back in there you know they just insist on me coming because they can sure tell a difference in their game and there's uh i take a lot of pride in the the ability to catch numbers you know it's uh Mm -hmm. and the predators especially i I never was much of a water trapper Uh, i i like the mountain the dry land trapping and i love trapping out west we've started going out there now and doing that and it's uh I love catching those bobcats and coyotes and fox. It's just uh, when I was a kid, guys that could catch fox in numbers, you know, you you really looked looked up to them. And it's just something that I've always really wanted to perfect. And I feel like now when I was a kid, it's just like you set a bunch of traps and hope to catch something. And I set a bunch of traps now and and know I'm going to catch something. And I'm I'm almost surprised when I don't. You know, it's it's just... uh, and it helps you in every bit of your woodsmanship. There's a there's a knowledge that comes with that learning those animals that applies to other things, and it'll make you a better bow hunter. And um, always the best turkey hunters you ever meet will be trappers. There's something about knowing how that animal's going to come when you're calling him. And same with elk hunters. It's uh, that your best trappers are your best hunters. It's just something about it. They just go hand in hand. That's that's and I agree with you. It's um, probably where I learned more about uh, nature than anything else was yeah. trapping, and it's kind of different. I was I grew up on the East Coast, so 
Um, and at the time, we actually didn't have – you'd see a gray fox now and then. You'd see mm-hmm. red fox, but never saw coyotes growing up. Uh, I never saw a, a bobcat until after I moved to Georgia, which was you know 20 years ago. Um, but I uh, caught a lot of, of fur bearers around water, especially muskrats was the thing that, that yeah. I could make the most money on trapping when I was a kid because sure. – the, the the landowners that had ponds would would pay you a bounty to catch those, and then uh-huh. you you know then you could also sell the the pelts as well. But yeah, um, I I would like to get back into doing it again one day. But again, it's you know it'll probably be after I retire because it's you know life just doesn't allow me to be able to go and and check traps on a daily basis, and there's no way I'm gonna do it unless I can. So. Oh yeah, it's a it's a huge commitment. It uh, but it it's very rewarding. You know, before I could drive. I was trapping and it's um, back then I, I could make more money trapping than guys were making working. And it, uh, it taught me how to, uh, well, basically I just turned it into a little business when I was just a little kid. I was, you know, I had my own fur shed and, you know, I bought my own traps and sold my own fur and it just kind of taught me uh, how to be a businessman, you know, and those uh, all through history, the fur industry is, it has been a huge part of of America, you know, and it's uh, uh, it doesn't need to be lost. It there's a purpose for it. People have gotten so oh, they just watch too much TV, you know, that they just are. I don't know, but you see, like you you mentioned that there's a resurgence in it, and you see more of a positive light on it on TV anymore, and, and that's rare, you know. It's uh, that that's a good thing, you know, and it's it's surprising me that they portray trapping now as as a good thing. So maybe we, there's still hope. <laughs> yeah, on the uh, the view side of my family, actually, Mike, I've got a lot of trapping in the history, and mm-hmm. we found that out um, uh, a few years ago. A lot of um, uh, French fur trader, traders yeah. and uh, things of that nature, and it was really fun learning about all that. And of course, you know, I, I'm I'm originally from Sheboygan and and up by the Straits, and mm-hmm. and there's a lot of that up there. Um, and funny, I didn't really know anybody that trapped growing up. Um, but, uh, we had a, uh, we had a neighbor that actually trapped our hunting property and he gave yeah. me a beautiful silver fox pelt for a quiver. And I never did turn that into a quiver, but I'm almost worried to mess it up. I, someday I'm going to have to do that. Um, but <laughs> what would something like, I don't, I know nothing about trapping. Um, mm-hmm. how would somebody get into it? Like, let's, let's assume like, if there, if somebody with woods knowledge who was a hunter wanted to get into trapping, yep. what would they need to get started? Uh, Mike Yancey with Pine Hollow Longbows offers a week long trapping class. <laughs> 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 but no, there's no. I love just softball. <laughs> yeah, just a, a little ad here while we're talking. No, man, there's there's no. That was se- awesome. <laughs> there's no secrets anymore. You know, it's just like building a bow. There's uh there's so much information out there that's uh. You know, there's some good videos, but uh, just it's just like building a bow. Find you a good method and stick with it. But the main thing is learn the animal that you're wanting to target and and tra- trap accordingly as far as the uh, uh, the trap for that animal. It's uh, you know that's that's the main thing. But it's really not that hard. Uh, there's uh, several books that I I would suggest guy get and just go from there. If you can't find anybody, you know to to teach you okay i mean any any uh any uh animal in particular you might suggest to start 
I mean, I guess depending on where you live or, oh, yeah, or sure. a simple trap to use. Yeah, water trapping is, is the easiest thing because it's so easy to read sign. You know, you can see the tracks in the mud and uh, muskrats, like Steve mentioned, uh, most guys um, in the Midwest, especially, you know, they, they cut their teeth cutting uh, trapping rats and they're, those are easy. Uh, beavers are easy. It just requ- requires tons of coons are caught now. They uh, those uh, dog proof coon traps that they've come out with have made experts out of idiots. You can uh, all you got to do is be able to set the thing <laughs> and secure it and put you some bait down in there and you'll catch a coon. You know, I mean, there's just nothing to it. So <laughs> it's uh, but they flooded the market with coons now and and now the you can't hardly move a coon hide. Uh, that they go from being the extra extra large having a value down to nothing there's there's no middle ground on the coons because they have literally just flooded the market with the number of coons that they've been able to catch but it's going to help a lot of turkeys you know that they serve a purpose catching them you know i caught more raccoons when i was a kid with simple aluminum foil than anything oh yeah yeah they're they're easy to catch cover the cover the pan with aluminum foil and set the trap in a little in bit an of area where it would mm-hmm. reflect sunlight. Yeah. That's all you had. I mean, moonlight, excuse yep. me. All you had to do. Right. So Mike, I guess to, to wrap this up, I know there's, there's one other, there's one other hobby that you, you've recently started venturing mm-hmm. into, um, uh, which is around, uh, black powder hunting. And, and I know that's, uh, and we've had a we've had a guest on talking about black powder hunting, but um, you know, tell us a little bit about uh, about the what you've been doing with black powder, and mm-hmm. is it you know are you doing flintlock, are you doing cap and ball, you know what are you what are you doing with regards to uh, your your black powder, and and how big of a hobby is it getting to be for you? Oh, it's uh, it, it's consumed me. I tell you it. Um... <laughs> <laughs> my my wife has to come out and get me out of the shop. It's like when I first started building bows years ago. I just um, I lose track of time. And, and right now, it's purely uh, a fun thing. But there's not many people have four rifles going at one time for fun. But I don't know. It's uh, they're flintlocks, and uh, and it just comes from that love of uh, the mountain man and the fur trade era that. Uh, those the rifles and the revolutionary period french and indian wars uh just a history nut and i see the beauty in a flintlock rifle like i do a traditional bow uh i i, I tell no difference in stuff that i hunt with a with a flintlock or a bow they both mean so much to me and i've uh, got friends that have built rifles for me and and now i've started building my own i've uh i lucked out and and have a good friend in mississippi that uh built flintlocks and uh, i went down there and spent a couple of days with him and kind of learned the basics and then after that i just dove in just like building uh self bows i really didn't have any formal training and it uh it's just consumed me but i i tell you what i absolutely love those those rifles they are so much fun to shoot you couldn't give me every inline that they make i I wouldn't have one i don't i don't care if somebody shoots them you know i don't think y'all to outlaw them but uh i i I just don't see the beauty in them and it's like a compound bow i don't i don't care if you shoot one but uh they're not uh they're not warm uh they don't they don't interest me i don't see any beauty in them 
uh, I don't like high tech stuff. These um, these bows and these guns and a fly rod are all about in the same category. And uh, you'll do just as good with a fly rod as you will with a bass boat and a bait casting rod. It's just all method and uh, the love of doing it and love of the method, I guess. But they, they're very effective. These, you know, I just built a 36 caliber uh, flintlock in a southern style like they would have built in Tennessee or the Carolinas. And you can the shoot. Boy rock. Yeah, a little squirrel rifle. And it's literally like shooting a twenty two Magnum that smokes. There's there's no kick and just a pleasure to shoot. Uh I shoot number three buckshot out of it or triple lot buckshot I should say. Um and uh with the patch and you can buy that stuff for nearly nothing. It, you can buy that Hornady uh those balls like that. Everything else I have a, a mold for all my rifles and I pour my own balls. But uh, for that little gun, I, I can buy the buckshot cheaper than I can probably buy a mold and, and make a bunch. But they're, they're just so much fun to shoot, you know, and you can shoot little one-inch groups. They're just tack drivers. And, and my big rifles do the same. And probably what I'm enjoying now is I'm going back and doing all the stuff that I've killed with bows. I'm going back and doing it with flintlocks. And it's uh, mm -hmm. that's so neat. Uh, and a lot of times I'll even wear the period. I'll wear the buckskins and uh, my bags are all historically correct. The guns are right. Uh, I'm not a particular. I'm not like the American Mountain Man Association where I'll kick you out if you're your moccasins don't match your le your leggings you know I, I i don't draw the line that close i, I love it all and right. i see the beauty in it you know it's uh and a lot of people that there's the same interest i have found in going to these events all over that guys that are good at building bows are good at building flintlocks it's almost like the trapping and the turkey hunting they they just go hand in hand and you can just sit at a camp and visit with somebody for hours on guns that they're building. And um, I like to carve them. I, I do the, the, the real intricate carving in the stocks and just find a, a lot of pleasure in doing that. And man, they're just, to me, they're so pretty. I, I don't know that I'll ever sell them. For one thing, you'd go broke uh, doing it. There's uh, so many hours in one of those guns. I can build probably seven or eight bows in the time that it takes me to build one rifle it's uh it, it's that time consuming and no. you just you wouldn't think it would be that much but every little piece that you've got an inlet in that wood is you know about a four-hour project and and i build them from scratch I, I i cut my own i don't cut my own wood i cut my blanks out and then i inlet the barrels and in the lock and all that i buy the barrel and the lock and i make a few of the parts but most of it i buy but that just cuts down on the cost but yeah they're uh they're neat and they're super fun to hunt with and you know like say a, a modern rifle or an inline they just don't interest me in the least but i i do like a flintlock rifle now well and if i, I, I i've been saying it for a couple of years and i know i'll end up doing it at some point mm -hmm. but if i ever were to to head back into the woods again with a gun it would it would have to be with a flintlock it's really the only thing i care about uh, maybe picking up a, a firearm again would be a, a, a flintlock black powder rifle, and I've always loved that that poor boy style rifle. Just mm -hmm. the the yeah. plain simplicity of it, just 
to me is beautiful. And I'm a big history nut too. So it yeah. goes back to my favorite period in American history is the Revolutionary War. So yeah, you know, that's that's the weapon that a lot of the, the militia men were carrying. I mean, yeah, they were carrying their own personal what, rifles. You think fancy? Yeah, right. And if my shoulders ever give out, you know, from shooting heavy bows for so many years, uh, I'll just slide right into that rifle and and not think a thing about it. You know, I I would be lost if I didn't have that. I feel like if if I didn't have the the flintlocks to go go to, uh, as I get older and and your poundage starts dropping a little bit and you can feel those aches and pains uh, after you shoot a heavy bow very much, uh, I, I would be concerned. Uh, at my age now, uh, if I didn't have the flintlock to look back on it, but now, man, I, I just, I don't want my shoulders to go out on me, but I sure, uh, it wouldn't bother me to just hunt with a flintlock either. Well, everybody keeps telling me that too. And I'm knock on wood. I'm, I've, I've been shooting pretty heavy now for, for many years and I've mm -hmm. never experienced, you know, other than the typical soreness, if I, oh, yeah. you know, if I go shoot three rounds on a 3d core shooting mm -hmm. a 75 to 80 pound bow yeah i'm gonna have a little bit of soreness but uh, you know i i'm i'm really hoping and i've got a theory i guess we're just gonna have to wait and see over the next 20 years if it if it proves to be uh, any good or not but you know i think if you if you if you stick with it and keep shooting them yeah i know eventually you're going to lose muscle tissue and you're going to mm -hmm. have to drop down in weight but you know i'm just hoping that if it's something you you make a routine to where you're you're not you know putting your bow down for six months at a time and then trying to pick up a heavy bow and go out and shooting it on a regular basis i'm hoping that the age thing is not going to be as big a deal as somebody some people have made it out to be because again i've been i've been shooting 75 and 80 pound bows for uh well in excess of 10 years at this point and i mm -hmm. shoot a lot yeah. And like I said, I've never, never experienced any pain. And I think it's probably different for, you know, individual to individual too, but I'm with you. If yeah. you, if you, if I can't pull the bows back anymore, I'm going to have to do something. And I think it would probably be the flintlock before I do anything else. Yeah. So we won't talk about any of the other weapons that I just abhor and would stay away from. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. I know where you're going there, but, and I think you're probably, probably right. If you, if you don't use it, you lose it. And, uh, uh, it's, uh, and it could be too, you know, just certain people just can't hold up. But I, I believe mostly if uh, if you stay after it, you know, you're going to stay in reasonably good shape and not have a problem. So we'll just stay with it. Well, I'm sure planning to. Nick, you you got anything else? No, I just keep thinking about how I want to flintlock now and oh, some, no. something else I need to get. <laughs> I've got <laughs> I've got Nick hooked into fly fishing now. He, he, I'm not just hooked, man. <laughs> I'm addicted to fly fishing. I know. And now, I think if I, if if uh, Jess may come down here and just beat me if I end up pulling you into flintlocks too. So, yeah. Yeah. You can't buy a gun. For yeah. A while, next Nick. will be. Hey, let's make bamboo fly rods. <laughs> <laughs> well mike we really do appreciate you taking the time to hop on here well, you're uh, welcome i've enjoyed sure it we uh we throw a we throw a, a link to uh your website in the in the show notes and and highly recommend everybody you know if they if they hadn't already been to your website and checked you out look at the uh look at the stuff you got to offer i know it's some some beautiful bows and like i said i know some people that's that's attended the classes i'm gonna have to do it one of these days somewhere i just i gotta figure out where i'm gonna get the the time to do it but yeah. uh but we really do appreciate you absolutely oh you're welcome all right well 
take care, Mike. Mm-hmm. And Nick, you have a you have a good evening as well. And I will be talking to you gentlemen again real soon. Thanks, guys. All right. Enjoyed it.